You are listening to the Vine Church Sermon Podcast. Thanks for joining us. For more information about the Vine Church, please visit our website at www.thevinemadison.org. As we transition to the preaching of the Word, I want to just ask a question. What percentage of people in our present culture, what percentage of people in our present culture, meaning our neighbors, our coworkers, our family, would self-identify, do you think, as Christians? What number of people would self-identify as Christians? Any, any guesses? Throw a number out. 50? 46. 70. All right, I just Googled this, and Google obviously knows the answer. Uh, and it, it's pretty, across multiple forms. It seems like the number right now is 63%. 63% would self-identify as people who believe and know and follow Jesus. And I, I hope that that number is true. And I hope that we don't see like a decrease in that number as we kind of are seeing, but it would, it would increase. But I, I lead with that question because I want to ask the follow-up question of, but how does any one of those 63% of people know that their experience with God is genuine? That their faith, that their belief in God is the real thing. Or we could flip it on us. Like, how do you know your experience with God is the real deal? In Matthew 7, Jesus warned about folks who will say, Lord, Lord, on the day of judgment. They'll say, Lord, Lord, expecting to be received into heaven, but instead are met by Jesus' terrifying words in which he says, depart from me for I never knew you. And, and, and perhaps they, they might say, like, but Lord, don't you know we prayed the sinner's prayer at camp? And, and here, like, we prayed the sinner's prayer. And the Lord will say, but I never knew you. Or perhaps they might say, but Lord, we knew a lot about the Bible. Like, I, I had memorized or I knew, like, the books of the Bible song even, right? That catchy little tune. And still, the Lord will say, yes, but I never knew you. Or maybe they say, but Lord, you, you don't understand. We were moral. We did spiritual good things in our community. And the Lord will still say, yes, but I never knew you. Or perhaps they'll be like, but Lord, you just don't understand. We were actually in ministry. We were on the team that no one wanted to be in. We were on the prayer team. Heck, we were on the casting out the demons team. And still he'll say, yes, but I never knew you. This disturbing scene from Matthew's is never far from my mind. Because I, I wonder, am, am I in that group? How do you know that you won't be in that group of people that Jesus is talking about? How do you know that you are a Christian? What is your assurance? Zach wrote in the beginning of this little book that hopefully you've been finding helpful. He wrote in the second paragraph, which sometimes we skip the first page, right? But Zach wrote this. He said, for many of us, the assurance of our salvation in Christ feels flimsy and wavering. I feel that. The book of 1 John was written to ancient believers who felt the same. They too struggled with this assurance at times. John wrote this letter so that believers may know that you have 
eternal life. In our four verses today that John Centennial already read for us in our service, it provides what I believe are three concrete handholds. Three like secure grips. Three evidences for us to hold on to in our assurance in our relationship with God. So the question today is, how do I know that I am a Christian? And I believe John gives us three evidences of assurance. Let's pray. Father God, we, we come to you asking that you would open your words to our heart and our heart to your word. Lord, I pray for all with a biblical understanding of our assurance that can be found in you, Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen. Well, if you have a Bible, open up the chapter 4 of, of 1 John. It'll be on the screen, but if you don't have a Bible and want to see it in front of you, there's Bibles on the tables back there. And I want to actually start in verse 12, the verse we looked at last week. And again, we're looking at this question of how do I know I am a Christian? And John writes here in verse 12, he says, no one has ever seen God. And then he says, if we love one another, so here's a condition. If we love one another, John says two things are going to happen. He says, first, God abides in us. And secondly, God's love is perfected in us. Do you see it there? If we love one another, two things happen. God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. The reason why I go back to this verse is because this verse is really a springboard or a launching pad for John and how he concludes chapter 4. And we'll see in our verses today, verses 13 through 16, that John is elaborating on this first thought that he has that God abides in us. And then if we were to read verses 17 to the end of the chapter, that John will elaborate on the second idea of God's love being perfected in us. And, and that's a section that Zach will address next week about God's uh, love being perfected in us. But today we're staying in verses 13 through 16, exploring this idea really of how we may know. How do we know that God abides in us? Which is really the same question of how do I know I am a Christian? What's the evidence? Are you with me? So how do I know I am a Christian? John gives us three evidences. The first one we see right there in verse 13. John writes, By this we know, meaning we can be certain of something, right? He wants us to know something. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us. Why? Because he has given us of his spirit. He has given us his spirit. So, so how do I know I'm a Christian? The first evidence that we have here is because I am filled by the spirit. Because I am filled by the spirit. And I know theologically, I think many of us probably conceptually get this idea that John is expressing. That the moment of conversion, we become the spirit's home. 
his dwelling place. There's this abiding. We see it in various places throughout Scripture, such as in Ephesians 1, or we could uh, turn, which will be on the screen here, from 2 Corinthians, where Paul says this, And it is God who establishes us with you in Christ, and has anointed us, and who has also put his seal on us, and given us who? His spirit, where? In our hearts, as a guarantee. At the moment of conversion, we become the Spirit's home. But I want you to step away from what you perhaps think you know in this concept. And consider for a moment the radical nature of this profound or incredible reality that we're saying. Paul also writes in 1 Corinthians 6, he says this, Or do you not know that your body is what? A temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God. And so we know as we read through the Old Testament that the Bible speaks of tabernacles and temples, right? The dwelling place of God. We know that God gave Moses the first plan for that first tabernacle in the wilderness, and Israel built it, and they used it during their time of wandering in the wilderness. And we read that Solomon, David's son, gave the tabernacle permanency by building this massive stone temple. And then after that temple was destroyed, other temples were built. And in each and every tabernacle and temple, we know that God dwelled, that God resided, that God lived. And oftentimes the biblical authors say there's this this, this fire and smoke and there's just like an evidence of God dwelling in these places. But where is the temple today? Where is the temple today? It's right here. In Christ, because of what Christ has done, you and I, Christians, we are the new temple of the Holy Spirit. There's no earthly temple anymore. God lives in us. Which is why John says over and over, actually four times in our passage, that God abides in us. But it's not as if there were like no other homes available for God to dwell in. It's not as if like the housing inventory right now was, was like so low that like God like reluctantly chose that house, our life. Like this is the only one I can find. So I'm going to reluctantly purchase this home, but I'm going to keep my eye on the market hoping for something better, you know, to turn up in a few months. Absolutely not. Because in verses 7 through 12 that Zach preached last week, it told of God's great love, didn't it? Of God's great love to the Christian that he endured the path of the cross for you and for I. Because God wants to make his home in your life. Do you see that? Do you feel that? The Spirit of God could have taken up residence anywhere. Even in ancient cold stone buildings. But he has not. The Spirit of God has chosen to take up residence in you. You see, the Spirit of God wants everything to do with you, Christian. He wants 
to know you and for you to know him. Your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. At the moment of conversion, we become the Spirit's home, his dwelling place. So how do I know I am a Christian? The first evidence, John says, is because I am filled by the Spirit. And some of you may be thinking, well, that's not terribly, you know, concrete or helpful evidence. It's not as if the Christian can walk around throughout their day like a pregnant mother and feel the kick of the baby or feel the kick of the Spirit. It's not as if, like, I have this wave of doubt. I'm not sure if I'm saved. Hold up, hold up. I got something here. I'm good. That's the kick of the Spirit right there. It's not like, hey, Ross, come over. I want to show you something this afternoon. Come over to my house. I want, to, I want you to see something. And, and like, Ross, put your hand right here. Like, feel that? Feel that? That's the kick of the Holy Spirit. I got him. <laughs> and you're invited to come over today. <laughs> How do we know God's Spirit lives in us? We can't see it. We can't touch it. We can't smell it. We could go to lots of places in the Bible. I want to go to Galatians chapter 5. And I want you to see this. Galatians chapter 5. And, and here we have Paul writing to this ancient church. Christian brothers and sisters just like us today. And, and he's instructing them of what everyday life looks like with the spirit of God dwelling within them. He says this in verse 16. He says, I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are, what? Against the Spirit. And the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For they are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. Paul's articulating that there's this dividing line. A stark dividing line between our flesh, that is what we want to do just most naturally, and that of the Spirit. That is what God wants us to do, which is ultimately to glorify Him. So, so how do we know that the Spirit, God's Spirit lives in us? Well, Paul is helping us see that we will live a life that looks and feels and smells a whole more like the life of Jesus than that of perhaps Hollywood or Capitol Hill or Wall Street. And Paul will continue that life in the, fr- the flesh, it, it bears a particular marking. It bears a particular fruit, and it's evident. Verse 19, the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, Enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. That's what life in the flesh looks like. Life without the Spirit of God. But life in the Spirit, that, Paul says, looks different. Paul says that those with the Spirit will bear a different looking fruit. Verse 22. But the fruit of the Spirit is love and joy and peace and patience and kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. 
That's the fruit of the Spirit. Meaning it's when I come home exhausted from spending a day at work and everything in me, I just want to lay down on the couch. And the kids might be running around just like in full chaos. The sink might be full of dishes. And it's God's spirit in me saying to my spirit, get your butt off the couch and in kindness engage with your family. In love, go serve your wife. It's, it's when I'm alone and when the fleshly impulse of sexual immorality like seeps into my brain, tempting me to believe no one will ever know. It's God's spirit in me saying to my spirit, get yourself out of this situation and in self-control and in faithfulness, preserve your sexual integrity. It's when the neighbor once more has a late night party, keeping the family up, causing my kids to be sleep deprived and cranky. And it's God's spirit saying to my spirit, get yourself away from this fit of anger and in gentleness. Seek peace and understanding with your neighbor. Do you you see this dividing line between what the flesh wants to do and what the spirit of God wants to do? One wants to lead and and grow a a mess and, and carnage, really. And the other brings us to something holy and good. Do you see how the indwelling spirit of God combats our flesh? Our fleshly desire will always and every time desire the things that we want, but it's the spirit of God within us that compels and guides us to the things that God desires for us. The spirit is against the flesh, and the flesh is against the spirit. This past week, I was talking to a neighbor in her yard, and earlier this summer, she had planted apple trees in her yard. And so I said, hey, Sherry, do do you think that you'll get some apples this summer? And I thought I was being a good neighbor you know, I thought it was a good question. I thought I was taking. Am I on? Okay. I thought I was taking an interest in her life, right? But she laughed at me. She laughed at me. She said, oh, no, it, it takes five to six years for an apple tree to produce apples. You guys probably already knew that, but five to six years, it's like, no, 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 I'm good. I'll just go to pick and save and get my bag of apples, right? You know what I'm saying? But I know that in my own life, that in the midst of my own flimsy and wavering assurance of faith, it's often connected to this reality of that I just don't see this fruit that Paul is expressing here in Galatians 5. I I can look at my impulse to anger or sexual immorality or jealousy or idolatry and feel as if I'm no different than my neighbor down the street who doesn't even believe that there is a God. But apples don't grow overnight. Apples don't grow overnight. Don't misunderstand. Where we sin, where we give in to anger, where we give in to sexual immorality or jealousy or the like, we repent. It's already talked to us about that, right? That we... 
keeping on sinning, like that's not the mark of a, a believer. Sin is sin. We don't minimize that. But in those moments of flimsy and wavering assurance of like, is God's spirit? Do I see these things like at work in my life? Let me just suggest that you ask this question. Am I who I used to be? Am I who I used to be? As Zach says often, it's not the perfection, but the direction that we're headed. Can, can I authentically and honestly look into my life? Can, can others look into my life? And can they point to evidences of God's spirit at work? Of markings of his fruit, of evidences of, of growth? You know, perhaps years ago, you, you did have uncontrollable fits of anger towards, you know, perhaps spouse or kids. Maybe several episodes a, a month. But today, if, if you were to ask, like, your, your wife, the wife may testify, like, yeah, it was uncontrollable in our home. But if I can be honest, these past nine months, like, maybe there was an episode or two. But even at that, it lacked the severity of what it once was. And if I'm being really truthful, like, the life is, is marked more by gentleness and patience rather than this rising anger. Perhaps years ago, you were, you know, unhinged in pornography. Every day, just consuming explicit content. But today, if in full transparency and accountability, maybe two or three instances in the last six months where you gave in to that desire. And in full honesty, like, maybe you, you sense this, like, what once was this iron-held, selfish desire of consuming porn, porn is slowly being replaced by its desire of, of serving and blessing others in your life. What's your direction? Apples don't grow overnight. And again, in no way am I suggesting a hall pass for sin. Not at all. Not at all. Anger or sexual immorality in those illustrations is a sin. And it must be taken seriously every time. But it's when you sense that anger perhaps rising up within you. When the anger is rising up within you and God's spirit says to your spirit, uh-uh, not this time. And by the power of the Spirit, you put away that fleshly desire and you bear the Spirit's fruit of gentleness and patience. Friends, when that happens, that's the power of God's Spirit at work in your life. When you see that sensual photo on the internet and immediately God's Spirit says to your spirit, you won't have me today. And by the power of the Spirit, you close the laptop bearing the fruit of the Spirit's self-control and goodness. Friends, when that happens, recognize and celebrate the power of God's Spirit within because in your flesh, you wanted it. How do I know God's Spirit lives in me? Am I who I used to be? For if God's Spirit lives in you, then you are not who you used to be. For the power of the Spirit within you is transforming you, is creating you to be a person who looks a whole more, more like Jesus than that of our world. 
You with me? How do I know I am a Christian? One, because I am filled by the Spirit. Secondly, because I confess, as John led us through already this morning, because I confess Jesus as the Son of God. Verse 14. John writes this in verse 14. And we have seen and testified that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. So God abides in who? Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God. You see that there in verse 15. But here's what we have to understand from Scripture. Is how does one come to make a confession that Jesus is, as it says there, the Savior of our sins? The apostolic testimony that we see there, and we is referring to John and the apostles. So the apostolic testimony, it helps, right? It helps knowing that we're joining our belief with real historical people and real historical moments. That helps. But does that compel us to believe? The only way anyone confesses Jesus is the Son of God is, as John says there, that God abides in him and he in God. It's by the Spirit of God in you by which anyone confesses Jesus as God. Remember when Jesus asked his disciples the question, who do you say that I am? Peter, right? Response. He says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. But do you remember what Jesus responds to Peter with? He says this in Matthew. He says, blessed you are, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood, meaning no other human, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but who? My Father who is in heaven. How does Peter know that Jesus is the Son of God? It's, it's God in Peter. Meaning Peter did not come up with that idea on his own. And that's John's point in his letter, that if in your heart you've truly confessed Jesus is the Son of God, sent by the Father to be the Savior of the world, you did not figure that out on your own. Rather, God revealed it to you by his Spirit. How do I know I am a Christian? One, because I am filled by the Spirit. Two, because I confess Jesus as the Son of God. And thirdly, because I live a life characterized by love. Verse 16. John says, so we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love. And whoever abides in love abides in God. And God abides in him. So, so in other words, as we come to an understanding of God's love, step one, it becomes really incomprehensible that it would not produce in us a life characterized by love. Do you see it there in verse 16? 
as John's saying, as we come to know God's love, as we come to believe God's love, what does it produce? That we abide in love. Abide means dwell, that we dwell in love, that we take up residence in love. When John wrote his gospel account, he used a provoking title when talking about himself, didn't he? He called himself the disciple whom Jesus loved. And for years, I always thought that was arrogant of him. But I don't think it was a statement of arrogance as much as it is that John, like that the other disciples were unloved, I'm loved, they're not. Instead, I think he's just speaking to his own understanding of his relationship with Jesus in that he knew that Jesus loved him. Imagine three years, day in and day out, walking and eating and spending time with Jesus, like tangibly feeling the love of Jesus every day. What would that love do to you? How would that love shape you? You see, John experienced firsthand the source of all love that then flows to all of humanity. And what did that do for John? Well, it made him into a fearless man who loved God in full totality with all of his life, and it it rocked him to his core. But here's the question that we have to ask. How do you and I go about possessing the same convictional belief John possessed about God's love so that we too may speak of ourselves as disciples whom Jesus loves? How do we get there? Well, again, let's go to some words of the Apostle Paul in Ephesians. And this is a prayer that Paul prays for the church in Ephesus. And he prays this. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and earth is named, that according to his riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened strengthened with power through who? His spirit, where? In your inner being. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. That you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth. And to know what? The love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. That you may be filled with all the fullness of God. So how do we come into this convictional belief of God's love? Paul says it there in his prayer. It's it's by the indwelling spirit. That through the presence and power of the indwelling spirit, Paul is praying for the Ephesus church that they may come into a fullness of knowledge of God's love, which he says surpasses knowledge. Many of us have been familiar with God's love for so long that it kind of becomes a little numb to us. And so again, I want you to step back from what you think you know about God's love and just consider for a moment the profoundness of God's love. In Psalm 103, David wrote, For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love towards those who fear him. As high as the heavens are above the earth. So great is God's steadfast love. Think about that. How does one go about measuring 
love like that. No tape measure that we can get out and stretch to measure the expanse of that love, is there? Consider this, and I'm not an expert. I'm just telling you what Google spit back, back at me. Some of you guys are scientists, and you can correct me later. So these numbers are maybe perhaps arbitrary, just saying that up front. But it's what Google told me. But consider this. To get to the edge of our galaxy, traveling at the speed of light, experts say, would take 200,000 years. 200,000 years. However, there's more than one galaxy to our universe. Some will say there's as little as 80 million galaxies. Some will say there's two to three trillion galaxies. Perhaps that we don't even know. All of which is to say that if we were to travel at the speed of light, and I took the conservative number here, it would take no less than 15.5 billion years to measure the expanse of our universe. 15.5 billion years. And that's at the speed of light. A speed so fast that by the time I snap my fingers, you would travel around the equator of our earth seven times. And it's at that ferocious, unbelievable speed that it would still take 15.5 billion years to measure the expanse of our universe. Friends, it's this mind-blowing, inconceivable, immeasurable, incalculable reality to which David compares the expanse of God's love for you and I. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is God's steadfast love towards those who fear him. Does not that move you? Amen? Which is why John says in our passage that as we come to understand God's love by the power and the presence of God's spirit within, that it becomes incomprehensible that it would not produce in us a life characterized by love. Are you with me? You see, we cannot have a God who is love birth a people who do not love. It's incomprehensible. Whoever abides in love abides in God. Where God's life is, God's love will be. One of the great mysteries I've never, never bothered to Google, and you don't have to Google it for me, I'm okay being left in the dark here, is this, is how do the police go about rounding up folks to be in their little police lineups. You know what I'm talking about? At least in the movies, you see the witness, and they go into the police station, and then on the other side of the glass, there's like seven, eight potential suspects. And I think that the police are hoping that that witness identifies who they believe is the culprit, or to get some leads on it, right? I think that's how it goes. But what I want to know is how do they go about choosing that lineup? You know, like, are these just folks who are on payroll of the police station? It's kind of a cool gig, I guess, as long as you're not named as 
suspect. Are they just hanging out in the lobby? Like, how do they do that? And again, I don't want to know. I'm okay not knowing. But here's where I'm going with this illustration. Say somehow it's possible to get picked as part of this lineup with seven or eight others, and the witness is asked behind the glass, which one of these seven or eight suspects have you seen exhibit the love of God? Are you getting picked out of that lineup? Are you getting picked out of that lineup? Would those observing your life see a life characterized by love? And I think if we're honest with ourselves, and I'll be honest, on a good day, someone might pick me on one of my good days. But, but on other days, like, I often find myself just looking like the world looks. Jesus challenges us here. He writes in John 13, he says, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, by loving one another, by this, all people, all people, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Meaning our love for one another should be obvious and evident and loud. Are you with me? Our neighbors, our coworkers, our families, they should see it and know that something is different in the way in which we love. And we'll see more of this next week with Zach. But for us, how do I know I am a Christian? John says three things, three evidences. One, because I am filled by the Spirit. And really, because I've been filled by the Spirit, these two other evidences are even possible. Because I confess Jesus as the Son of God, and because I live a life characterized by love. And as we put the pieces back together, I hope that you notice that woven between all three of these evidences of these assurances for us to really hold on to. Woven between all three of these assurances in our moments of flimsy or waving doubt that we all share is this reality that none of these things is dependent or ever will be dependent on us. All three of these assurances are entirely dependent upon the already finished work of Jesus on the cross. And so our good news this morning and our charge this morning is to fix our eyes again on the person of Jesus who is the anchor to our doubts. Amen? Father God, we thank you for this word. We thank you for the truth that you give us. We thank you that you combat our assurances and doubts, that you call us to know that we are assured because of what you have already done. And so I pray for my brothers and sisters here who, who know you, who profess faith in you, Jesus, that you would quicken them to your word, that you would put to life these assurances. And Lord, that we would strive in every part of our life to confess you, Jesus, as Lord, that we would strive to exhibit the love that you displayed for us. And I pray for anyone in this room, God, that by the power of your spirit, 
the power of your word, that you would make alive these truths, that they too may come to faith in you, Jesus, because you know, we know you are Savior of our sins, the eternal Son of God. So Holy Spirit, would you do that now, I pray, in the power of your name. It's for your glory. Amen.